Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. Now the night was dark, and the mountain was covered with mist, and the moon was no bigger than the light from a wee penny candle. But it didn't hide him from me. For there he stood with an angry little gob on him and his face as fierce as fire. King Brian, me old boy, I've got you at last. And I'm not going to let you go until you grant me the favor of three grand wishes. Wait now, wait now. Maybe we can talk this over. Will you have a pinch of snuff? Aye, and you blow it into me eyes. I'm up to all your dirty little tricks. You've gone too far. You'll get no wishes from me at all now. You'll either give them to me or else you'll answer to the church. I'll have Father or curse you with a blessing that'll shrivel you up in a minute. All right, then. Wish your wishes and be done with it. I've worked to do at home. Ah, don't rush me. Don't rush you? Huh. Mean to say you're not going to wish for a crack of gold? I may in due time. But what's gold to a man if he be too sick or too sad to enjoy it? Uh, you're the thinking man. I am. And my first wish is you'll grant me health. Granted. Now, uh, my second wish is a small wish indeed. But it means a lot to me. I want a big crop of potatoes. Granted. And my third wish is for the crock of gold. Granted. The very people who have emptied nature of soul and reduced it to dead matter, obeying mechanical laws, pejoratively called traditional worldview animism, a term which effectively writes off what it claims to describe. To animistic cultures, there is no such thing as animism. There is only nature presenting itself in all its immediacy, as daimon-ridden. Every sacred object or place has a genius or jinn, Newman or naiad, yes, even its bogart and hob, as the case may be. The Romantics imagine nature in this way. Imagination was coextensive with creation, just like the soul of the world. They were identical. Every natural object was both spiritual and physical, as if dryad and tree were the inside and outside of the same thing. Thus every rock and tree was ambivalent, a daimon, a soul, an image. To the eyes of a man of imagination, wrote William Blake, nature is imagination itself. Way we go, and da, tree, track. Hello and good morning, I'm Douglas Bowles, and today William Morgan has the day off to celebrate his daughter's birthday on the beach. Happy birthday, T. And you're listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today, on the 17th day of June, we begin our 141st broadcast in attempt to find a stone that is not a stone. And we do so by reaching out to the other side with English writer and paranormal researcher Patrick Harper. Mr. Harper is the acclaimed author of four novels and three works of nonfiction, including Daimonic Reality, The Philosopher's Secret Fire, Mercurius, and The Savoy Truffle, published last summer 
by Skylight Press. It is both an honor and a pleasure to be speaking with him today. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Hello, Doug. I'm fine. Nice to talk to you. Wonderful. I wasn't familiar with your work, and I feel really fortunate that my co-host introduced me to your work. Well, I'm pleased. That's great. My own journey took the form of uh, studying mythology through Joseph Campbell, and as our show grew, we ended up speaking with his friend and the... Uh, the president of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, and then later we, you know, I was I discovered James Hillman, and uh, we spoke to his friend and his biographer. But I feel really fortunate today to I, I I find your work at the same caliber as their work, and it's just really an honor to be speaking with you in person. Well, that's very flattering. I'm a big fan of of both Campbell and Hillman, of course. Yeah, well, that's great. Um. Well, let's start with the idea of double vision and William Blake. What is double vision and, and what is your connection to William Blake and double vision? Uh, well, you started with a difficult one. Um, William Blake, uh, he, he thought that really imagining was having the ability to to cultivate this faculty of double vision. And he meant that, really, that instead of just merely seeing the literal world, uh, we also should see the world as a metaphor. So, for instance, he says in one of his poems, um, with my outer eye, it's a bush across the way. With my inner, inner eye, an old man gray. I've misquoted that, but you get the idea that he's looking at a bush, and it's with his literal outer eye, he sees it just as a bush, but with his inner metaphorical eye, he sees it as an old man gray. And it's this, this ability to see beyond the surface of things, to, uh, to, to, to grasp the metaphorical nature of reality that he lays emphasis. So that's essentially what the imaginative vision of the world is. When he saw the sun, he said, I don't see a, a golden disc like a golden guinea. I see a heavenly host singing holy, holy, holy. And there's evidence to suggest that he really did see that, that he went through life uh, in, in this visionary way, um, that all the objects of nature were for him personified. He, he actually saw the dryads in the trees and, and, the, and the nymphs in the woods and so on. So he had a kind of mythological consciousness. Are you familiar with uh, Barbara Ehrenreich? No. She has a, a book that's getting a lot of press right now called Living with a Wild God, and she describes uh, uh, an event very similar to the idea of seeing a heavenly host, where she stepped out of her house one day in uh, near the desert in California, and instead of seeing the literal world, she saw a world on fire with creation and fire 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 was kind of the the metaphor that she used but it wasn't it, it wasn't <clears throat> just metaphor it was what she was seeing too yes yes uh, that that's a quite a common common vision the the idea of of, of everything being a flame and, and so on um was it Maurice Buck was that his name the man who invented cosmic consciousness 
he was traveling home in the in the late 1800s in a in a handsome cab and he felt himself suddenly enfolded by flame and he felt that he had access to tremendous knowledge it was a sort of concrete sensual experience of, of a flame that didn't burn you but also a metaphysical experience of unlimited consciousness expansion and so on but this kind of gives rise to the idea of an other world and yeah. in our time and place, we're not as <laughs> we're not as uh, interested in the idea. Maybe I don't. Maybe that's a, the wrong way of saying it. But what is this other world that you talk of? Well, we're we're all good mechanical materialists now, but. You've got to remember, this is just a, a recent fad, you know, it's only been prevalent for the last three centuries, if that, um, that everybody before that in Western culture believed in, a, in another world, um, whether, a, whether Christian or not, and all other cultures, um, for them, you know, the, the, all tribal cultures, um, pre-literate cultures, um, take another world for granted. It's the world into which the, the shamans fly when they, when they seek to retrieve souls and kill people. And, and so it's, a kind, it's both supernatural, but it's also incredibly natural to, to believe in this. Um, and you can believe that it's, and so, some people believe that it transcends this world, that it's, as it were, somewhere else. That's the Christian view. There is a heaven beyond us. But most cultures believe it's, imminent or immanent within this world, that it's, it's a secret order of reality enfolded within this world, which is more or less what Blake believed as a good Platonist. Um, it, it, it all comes from the Greeks who believed that there was this other world, uh, this order and meaning which lies concealed beneath the surface of things, which Plato and the Neoplatonists called the soul of the world. So, um, in fact, it's, it's more orthodox and straightforward to believe in, in another world than, than otherwise. And the boundary between these worlds is not as... I, I read a fair amount of Arthurian literature, and it seems like oftentimes when the knights go to Wales, they're going off the map. Even though they're going to a literal place, they're not in this world anymore. Yes, yes, I know what you mean. Yes. Uh, in the olden days, where we, when we hadn't explored everything, you know, that, that the edge of the map is where the other world began. Um, now we've become more psychological, and we tend to say that the other world begins at the threshold of consciousness. It begins in the unconscious, for instance. But whether we locate it within ourselves or outside in some, some geographical location doesn't really make any difference. Um, Inside and outside are are the same thing, but but it's you know but we've it's we who've divided the world into an inside and an outside arbitrarily, around the time of Descartes. So um, you're absolutely right. You know they're they're taking a perfectly ordinary journey, and suddenly, the forest becomes not an ordinary forest; it becomes an enchanted forest. You know where castles appear and disappear, and so on, and. You know, it's a, it's a marvelous evocation of visionary experience, um, which is still available to, to all of us, you know, that, 
it, it's not kind of on the curriculum anymore. It's not taken for granted, but there are enough poets and imaginative people out there, enough shamans, enough dreamers. We all, after all, enter the other world every night in our dreams um, to, um, to, valid, to validate the idea of the other world, which can never be exactly located or proved because it's not a literal world. But um, it's nevertheless real. Some would say more real than this world. And, and who are the occupants of this other world? Um, well, traditionally, it was the gods and, uh, and the daimons. Um, it, it's they who live in the other world. You can call them archetypes, if you like, if you're a Jungian. But essentially, it's these personified figures who, who are powerful and who really determine and influence our lives willy-nilly, whether we know it or not. Could you, for our listeners, clarify the difference between a daimon, a daemon, and a demon? Are they all the same, or what, what's the deal there? Um, yeah, no, the, 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 the Greek word daimon, plural daimones, or daimonia, it refers to these uh, refers to these denizens of the other world. They live in the soul of the world, the Neoplatonists say, and they are um, you know they are strange creatures, um, very paradoxical, very contradictory. The the most puzzling contradiction is that they can be they can manifest physically. Um, as well as spiritually, as it were. Um, they're always elusive. They, they, they tend to appear at borderline times or in borderline zones, what the Romans called the liminal places. Um, they're tricksters. They're always mischievous. Um, they can be both malevolent and beneficent. They can help you. They can cure you. In Ireland, the fairies help you find treasure, but they can also give you a touch or a stroke and drive you mad. So they have all these these strange paradoxical qualities. And um, it was the, the Christians who took the word daimones, and, uh, and uh, Christianity outlawed these creatures because traditionally it was said that the daimones connect us to gods. Socrates says this, he said, the daimones um, convey the will of gods to men and the wishes of men to the gods. So they're intermediate creatures. They straddle the two worlds and so on. But of course, Christians would have no intermediary between us and God apart from Jesus. So they attempted to demonize the daimones and they turned the daimones into demons, into devils, and um, outlawed them and declared them a bad thing, but that didn't really get rid of them. Um, people went on believing routinely um, in, in daimones uh, into well into the 16th century. And um, even further attempts to outlaw them have failed. Um, I mean, I, I try and make the case in the philosopher's secret fire that when they were cast out of nature by Christianity followed by science, they took refuge within us as the complexes of the unconscious. But the unconscious itself was unknown before this time. Um, so they, they hid, as it were, behind the, the lit-up areas of our own consciousness. 
Um, so that's my long and not very coherent answer to your difficult question, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like there's this one-two punch that happened to this other world where both science and religion somehow outlawed this other world. Could you briefly sketch that the evolution of that literal belief well, in the you know the the foundation of materialism? Well, um well, it's a, it's a long and vexed problem. Um, Christianity, first of all, removed the other world from from being another aspect of this world to a transcendent other world, to a heaven that we can only access after death. Um, so that left this world sort of bereft of any otherworldly significance. Uh, science followed this up with with the invention of rationalism, which wouldn't believe in anything, which wasn't a measurable fact, and so on. It wasn't until the 19th century that rationalism was joined by materialism as an, as an ideology. And no one would have dreamt of saying there is only one reality, and it is brute matter, that whatever can't be weighed and touched um, is, is just a figment of your imagination. So we've paid a heavy price for this, but it hasn't stopped the other world from continuing to manifest. I mean, I think I say somewhere that at the very height of the invention of materialism by, by scientists in the 19th century, suddenly all the diamonds reappeared, but being banished from nature, they had nowhere to reappear except in the respectable drawing rooms of of New York and London. That is, they came back as the spirits of the seance, which was a fantastic, unexpected craze that swept America and Europe. Yeah, I think Abraham time. Lincoln was having seances in the White House. Yes, yes. I, I'm sure even Darwin attended a seance. I don't think he thought much of it, but he had a go. And um, indeed, seances in those days were really something to talk about. You know, they were quite extraordinary. Things used to fly through the walls and ghostly faces would imprint themselves on wax and all sorts of things like that. But the, di the diamonds are, are, are kind of alive and well. It's just they're not mainstream anymore. I mean, people still, people in Ireland still see fairies. Um, the, the fairy phenomenon has taken on a new twist in the 20th century with UFOs and so on. I think that UFOs are, are another daimonic manifestation. That's another aspect of them being banished from our own world. They reappear from from on high, as it were, as if from other planets. And they have all the um, characteristics of traditional diamonds, elusive, tricksterish, paradoxical, contradictory, and so on and so on. Yeah, and they both present helpfulness and, like... <sighs> Yes, they're, they're, that's right. They're amb always ambiguous. You know, you, sometimes they're helpful. Sometimes they're malevolent. Um, they seem to come in various different species. You know, they even perform acts that are traditionally performed by the daimon, such as, um, you know, abducting people and so on. That's an old fairy motif in which people are, are snatched by the 
snatched by the otherworldly denizens. So, um, kind of, the, 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 the great folklore of the other world is kind of alive and well in certain quarters, you know. And, you know, Bigfoot continues to roam California quite happily, and England is full of strange, mystery black cats, which can't be explained in other way except daimonically, as it were. My sister's written the definitive work on these creatures. She reckons there are more that pe more people have seen a large black panther in, in Britain than have seen a pig. That's probably true. A couple of interesting concepts that I came across in the Philosopher's Secret Fire is this idea how the daimons, there's both feeding and cooking. And I don't know that you put those two things together in the book, but somehow I connected them in my mind, that the daimons feed on something from material life, but for us in in this world to become initiated and, and uh, more activated as an individual, we kind of need to cook. Had, had you connected those two things? Um, I think they belong to different... I think they belong to different things. You know, that, that we... We feed the diamonds as a way of, just in a way that Buddhists will leave out food for the gods, you know. Um, but it, it's an acknowledgement of them, and it's said that they, that they don't eat the literal food, they eat the savour, the goodness from the food, so the food is thrown away afterwards. That was an incredibly widespread practice. The notion of cooking is quite different. It belongs to initiation. Um, but the metaphorical cooking is a way of initiating oneself during rites of passage. Um, and and um, I, I, I go into alchemy as a, as a, a way of meta-cooking oneself into, into an initiatory condition. So I, I don't kind of relate the two. Yeah, I don't relate the two in the way that you are mm -hmm. now trying to, Doug. It's curious to me, there's... I just recently traveled from California, and so I went through the Mojave Desert. And for whatever reason, that is one of those boundaries between this world and the other world. And like I said, there's the... Barbara Ehrenreich has the new book where she's in the Mojave Desert having those experiences. But then a couple summers ago, there was another fabulous book I enjoyed uh, by a gentleman named Harry Kunzrue. And he starts it with this Native American tale of coyote going out to the desert to cook. And he's it, it's playful in the idea that he's becoming initiated, but it's also... Uh, a, comic because coyote's going out to the desert to cook meth but in the process of cooking meth he's actually transforming transforming himself into a more realized version of himself well it's true to say that you know that, that coyote is as a great culture hero you know brings fire like they all do like prometheus or whatever brings fire to humanity and of course fire in, implies cooking and Cooking is a kind of a basic thing um, that you transfer. You tr it transforms raw nature into culture, and that's why during initiation rites, people metaphorically cook 
themselves or cook young people, for instance, in order that they can be transformed from natural beings into cultured, civilized beings and so on. So it plays a very large part. But of course, you don't literally cook people. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a metaphorical cooking. And it stands for, you know, transformation, transformation from one stage of life to another. Which is really interesting in terms of alchemy. And that's one of the the real interesting breakthroughs I had reading The Philosopher's Secret Fire is I think the first time I was looking at Jung's ideas of alchemy expressed by another Jungian analyst, I was I was reading it from more of a literalist view where they were describing a psychological process that the alchemists were undergoing, but the actual material process was not important. Whereas in your work, because of the connection between the other world and this world, that the actual process is important. Yes, yes, I, I think that. I mean, I think that's most fully expressed in my book, Mercurius, because that's a reenactment of the alchemical drama, you know, where I attempt to get inside it, and it's all about alchemy. And, um, you know, it goes into it goes into Jungian side, but it's as if Jung thought that alchemy was all mm. metaphor, as it were. But it's a daimonic activity, which means you have to take the literal into account as well. That it's a kind of a a process which precedes our division of the world into literal and metaphorical. So it all happens at once. And just when you think that the the philosopher's stone is an unattainable, possibly unattainable goal, or or, or just a metaphor for the for self-realization, as Jung thought you come across amazing tales of, of some actual substance being produced, and indeed of transmuting base metal to gold. I mean, there are, yes, there are several extremely convincing tales about this. So you're left wondering, it's a mystery, you know. Um, modern science hates, hates mystery. It regards all mysteries as problems to be solved, but some problems just can't be solved. They are a mystery, and a mystery is something you enter into, and you're transformed in the course of entering into it. It transforms you. But then, in that realm of mystery, oftentimes one of the tricks science does that I realize from reading your book also is that we take models to be the literal truth. Whereas, who knows what that reality actually looks like, like an atomic reality? Yes, yes, well, exactly, exactly. Um, we, only, we only know it when we enter it. And, um, you know, I don't, think there is, I don't think there is an atomic reality. You know, I think the whole atomic world is a, it's just the logical outcome of the scientific perspective, which is to break the world down into smaller and smaller units until you end up with a kind of meaningless foam, you know, that the universe becomes a sort of a grey sweep of ill-defined energy. But in fact, you know, what human life thrives on is is concrete, visionary images. Um, and that's where uh, 
that's where um, you know the imagination scores. I think. Do you think the atomic world is the daimonic world? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I think that it's. Um, I think it. I think that subatomic particles display all the characteristics of daemons. Daemons. They're extremely fast-moving, elusive. They're contradictory. They're both waves and particles, for instance. Um, you know, they they they're, they're tricky. You can't pin them down. Just when you think they're there, they're not there. But you can never locate them exactly, um, and so forth. You know, I think they're. Um, I think they're. Uh, I think the scientists will get the joke one of these days. You know, and, and realize that they're being being laughed at by the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's better to be a Blake than it is to... Um, and, and I think that, you know, the, the, these great particle accelerators and so on, I think in a hundred years they're going to look like the sort of fantastic follies of Victorian machinery, you know. That like they're, they're, an orgone accumulator? They're going to look like that, yes. Um, you know, they're, they're these vast... They're, they're like sort of underground cathedrals where, you know, the god of science is worshipped. And I think they're going to be. I think they're going to be outlived by. By our ordinary cathedrals, you know. I think they're just going to be so much junk in the end. So, um, but we'll see. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not anti-science. You know, I think science is is a good thing. But uh, sometimes you have to take it with a pinch of salt. And and I don't think that torturing subatomic particles under the age of consent. Um, it's going to get us much further. Hmm. <laughs> so but we'll the, see. <laughs> somehow the God particles a joke on our on ourselves. Well, the God particles are, is a wonderful is a wonderful example of the daimonic because they needed something to mediate between matter and spirit, as it were, to use the old theological language. In other words, they needed something to explain how all this energy in the universe somehow managed, ma magically congealed into mass, you know, became something substantial and visible, i.e. matter itself. So, you know, they had to, they thought there must be something that does this, that bridges this unbridgeable gap. And Ms. Professor Higgs came and said, there's a boson out there that does it. And um, they've now found it, or have they? They've certainly narrowed it down to an incredibly to incredibly narrow band in which to look for it. They claim to have found the Higgs boson, don't they? But um, some people think they haven't. <laughs> but, um, you know, the bloody thing's so small, it's not worth arguing about. <laughs> but certainly, they need a daimonic principle to, to, to join the two realms up, you see. The diamonds always come in and, and tease us and, and say, you know, you can't manage without us. We join one state of being to another, matter to spirit, this world to the other world, and so on. And they manifest... Oh, I forgot to mention that the, perhaps the greatest attribute of daimons and the most important is that they're, they're shapeshifters. That's why they're no longer fairies, they're subatomic particles, or, you know, or whatever. You know, that they cut their cloth to suit the times. That's the great thing about daimons. They shift shape. Well, you mentioned that we try and pin them down, but what we're left with is an empty mask. I wonder if you could explain 
the function of myth then? Explain the function of myth. Did or you say the, how a myth? What what role it plays in culture? Oh well, um, <laughs> I I think I I take Jung and Campbell's view, which is that all our lives are underpinned by myth, that we are living out myth, that myths are the blueprints of the soul. If you see what I mean, that, that those are that is the that is the that myths are are the are the imaginative substrate of our lives, and so we're all living out myth, whether we know it or not. And so our lives are much less free than we think. Um, but having said that, there are endless permutations of the same myth. So you never kind of run out of myth. Um, they, they go on reproducing themselves in endless variants related to each other. But, you know, all mythologies are... Well, everybody has everybody's noticed how similar mythologies are. They're, they're alike as the lines on the palm of our hands. None of them identical, but all of them analogous to each other. So, you know, the study of of myth is really the study of of the imaginative life of the soul itself. That's what, that's probably what I think. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's kind of what I was getting at. That. It's interesting in our scientific time, we think myth was something that other cultures did, that we don't... We don't yeah, do. we think we've outgrown them, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But they still animate culture, whether or not we're aware of it or, or not. Yes, absolutely. I mean, absolutely, they lie behind them, you know... They lie behind all our modern ideologies. The people who don't believe in myths are all the more vulnerable to them because they're blind to the myths that are controlling their ideologies. The great mother goddess that lies behind materialism, for instance, as James Hillman has pointed out, the great god Apollo, far-sighted, conscious, lit-up Apollo who lies behind rationalism. Um, it's better to acknowledge that these gods are in fact running these ideologies than to bind ourselves to them. Um, so, yeah, myth has, 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 is a word that's come to mean something untrue, whereas I would like to restore it as something that is um, more than true. Well, one of the aspects of the, of the group and our audience that we like to play with is the idea of a mythopoetic imagination that's manifesting in pop culture. And so that the mythologies there and the diamonds are there and just as playful and tricksterish as ever. It's just that we, we think of it as entertainment now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it, it's tragic. I mean, the, the, the mythical world or the other world where myths are valid have, has been outlawed. So it reappears spontaneously in, um, you know, computer games which is all about other worlds, and in, you know, horror films, and uh, all those things that, that uh, children rightly like so much, you know, because the poor little, poor little kids have been deprived of a proper imaginative life. You know, they've been told that, that myths don't exist, or myths are meaningless, and so naturally, um, but fortunately, they they reinvent them for themselves, or people reinvent them on the, on on behalf of them. Um, you know, 
it's what children still like, a vibrant, imaginative world. That you think that's true, Doug? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, so we have people who <laughs> think that the actor Matt Damon somehow is the Damon's using him as a mask to kind of tell this other mytho poetic imaginative story about I've never heard that the true nature of reality somehow is is manifested in the strange coincidences and seeming unrelated events in in our fictions oh really yes yes well there may be some truth in that although I, I I should think that poor Bat Damon I mean it's probably just bad luck he had that name. <laughs> is, is it his real name? I think it is. Well, yeah, in that case, he can't be held responsible for <laughs> for what people think about what animates him, really. <laughs> in The Philosopher's Secret Fire, you intimate that the scientific worldview is possibly ap- approaching its limit, that maybe... And so, as I was reading this, I got the sense that I was reading a, a true natural history of reality by acknowledging the other world. I was seeing a more full picture of what it is. Do, c- can you yeah. imagine a time where we reach that point where, where we have? I feel like a child of divorce. Like somehow we split mom and dad, and they went different directions somehow. Do you, do you think that... Yes, I, I know what you mean. I, I mean, I, from, from my point of view, the Philosopher's Secret Fire was just an attempt, an attempt to draw attention to... It wasn't, it wasn't an attempt to say anything new. It was an attempt to draw attention to, um, you know, a forgotten... a tradition that's now being forgotten or neglected, and that's to say a tradition that belongs to... that goes right back to Plato and emphasizes the faculty of imagination as being more important than reason or rationalism. And so I think that um, I'm hoping that a more platonic or William Blakeian worldview will surge up again spontaneously, and um, which is not anti-science. It'll just put science into its place again. You know, uh, it, what, you know science is a, is a useful tool and it's a useful and it's an interesting way of looking at the world, but it's got a bit too big for its boots. You know, it's kind of started outlawing other views. It started outlawing myth and religion, and and or else saying that they're they're worthless as a view of the world. When when I think that uh, the opposite is true. So you know, I would just like I would just like the sort of rationalistic, materialist view of the world to be. Um, be toned down a bit really and uh, and to be put into perspective by a resurgence of the great imaginative and visionary view of the world which is in fact orthodox and traditional as far as I'm concerned do you see what I mean yeah it's strange to me how science is like an apparatus a tool for describing something but then it's taken on a life of its own where scientism is more of this religious dogma and belief in its description. And yes. there's, there's certain... It's become a sort of pseudo-religion itself, yeah. And there's certain things you can't question because that goes against the dogma of scientism, but science would say question everything. 
exactly. It doesn't mean that at all. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake's very good on that in his book, The, uh, the Science Delusion. It's called something else in America. But um, he says exactly that. He says that, you know, science pretends to be completely open-minded. And he demonstrates that, in fact, it's extremely closed-minded. You know, there's all sorts of things it won't look at, you know. And um, my favorite philosopher, apart from Plato, is um, an American thinker called Charles Fort. Do you know, do you know him? Yes. Where yes, Fortean Charles... comes from? I'm sorry? I think, does Fortean, that adjective? Yes, Forti exactly. The adjective Fortean comes from Charles Fort. And in, uh, he wrote four, four great books. In the Book of the Damned, he has great fun with scientists, pointing out from their own literature, he combed the scientific journals and pointed out all the things that they'd completely ignored and suppressed, which even though they'd reported it themselves. Um, and he's very witty about that. You know, he has a marvelous style. So I warmly recommend Charles Fort to everyone, really. Well, do you think it'll be more like artists who change our worldview or do you think it would be someone like Rupert Sheldrake who writes a book like The Physics of Angels where he's he's talking about that atomic world as if it's also the daimonic world? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, uh, yes, I, I'm sure there'll always be some scientists with sufficient imagination to say, well, to smell a rat, really. Um, you know, free thinkers who aren't afraid of losing tenure or whatever, who are able to say, I, I mean, I, I hold these courses sometimes about, about the emythopoeic imagination, and scientists come to them, and they say, for God's sake, don't let my, you know, don't let my colleagues know I'm here, you know, I'll lose my job, you know. <laughs> and Sheldrake says the same. He said that, you know, he gives talks about anomalous events and things like that, you know, telepathy and all sorts of things. And all the scientists boo him. And then one by one, after the talk, they sidle up to him and say, actually, something like that happened to me, but it's more than my life's worth to mention it. So I, I, really, I, I really do think um, that scientists can be a bit hypocritical in that regard, that their private experience doesn't tally with their public office and persona but i can't blame them they're, they're good people it's just that you know they've got to support their families and they don't want to lose their jobs so i think there is a there is to some extent a uh, you know a culture of intimidation and fear in science as there is in all academic departments you know it's lovely being a free-range human being who can say what he wants you know and not have to worry about his job well that was 42 minutes Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you, Doug. You've been listening to Patrick Harper on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Harper can be found at harper.org. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much, and though we all know, oh, blah, dee, blah, da. Can you show me where you are?